Hello and welcome to another episode of The Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Bellotti, and today I'm really excited. We've talked about product-led growth before, but we haven't really covered is how to shift an existing business to product-led growth, like what that process looks like. And I'm really excited today to be joined by Laura Burgessi, who is the, I think I got your name right, who is the VP of growth at Gym Pass, and she has done product-led growth in a couple of different places. Laura, thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me, Matt. And you actually did perfectly on the pronunciation. Nice. I got it. All right. So the topic we're going to cover today, as I mentioned, is making a shift to product-led growth, like all the kind of messy sort of stuff that happens in between. I think it's talked about a lot as this really like great thing to move a business to, but it's generally a lot harder in practice. Laura, why don't you give a bit of a background on who you are, and we'll go ahead and jump in. Of course. So, well, my name is Laura. You've, you've said it perfectly. And uh, I've been working growth in tech companies for many years. I, I always like to say that I did so before growth was called as such, right? Or before having so many codified definitions and good best practices that you can, you can find, you can hear from other thought leaders these days. I spent the majority of my career at Google and then I went on to Stripe and most recently uh, MongoDB before joining GymPass. So throughout my career, I've always worked in what is called today product-led growth. Probably, Matt, before we start, it's good to sort of like give a little bit of a definition of what that is. And I like to always bring it back to product-led growth happens when the product itself is not only the what the users are ultimately buying, but it's also the primary mean of getting a user interested, signed up for a certain platform or product, engage with the product to ultimately for them inform that important decision of should I buy this or not, or how much am I willing to pay for this? So the product becomes more than just a product. And if you think about it, it becomes kind of a marketing channel in itself. So I've worked with this kind of concept and and different variations of it, uh, different team setups, companies that were at different stages of the lifetime of a company. And I realized that the core tenets of growth don't and product-led growth don't really change that much. And that's why I'm here with you today. Awesome. So let's go ahead and start at the the top of your career. So you, you had mentioned that you were doing growth stuff before it was called growth stuff. And you were working at Google, working on the Google Cloud product and using growth tactics. Can you talk a bit about what you learned there that served as the foundation for or the, all the other product-led growth stuff later in your career? I, I want to say that I probably learned at Google in the what it is today, the Google Cloud team, but more, more broadly from the Google culture, probably three core principles that I still keep in mind and kind of dictate how I operate today and that I would recommend every growth practitioner or curious out there to sort of like keep in mind. The first one is that data is the foundation of everything growth. And we can touch a little bit more about that in a second. The second one is that experiments are the how growth happens. More often than not, you said it in the beginning of this podcast, podcast. Uh, a lot of people think about product-led growth or read about growth in general, and they're like, yeah, but how do I make it in practice? And the reality is that it is as simple as creating a loop of, number one, looking at the data that's available. That goes back to my first point. Determining what part of the user experience to tackle first, 
based on that data, formulate some some solid hypothesis, and also learning what is not a good hypothesis, right? And ultimately executing on that hypothesis, so changing that part of the experience from X to Y, gather the results, and also using that as a new starting point, and then go back to the first point, right? That's very much how Google thinks for all things. And that's very much how that culture operates on a daily basis. And and I kind of like got it from day one and brought it with me all the way till today. There's a third principle that is part of the Google culture. I do believe it's also codified as in their philosophy, which says something like focus on the user first and everything else will follow. And that to me is the third big component and core principle that I still keep in mind today when it comes to product-led growth. There are a couple of reasons for that. The first one is that we build a new experience or improve an existing one because we ultimately want to help users, right? And we want to do that to let them better understand a certain product and how that product solves one or multiple of their needs. So we should never forget that we are here to build something that makes users' lives easier, right? And also, uh, the user must be kept front and center at all times, particularly, uh, Matt, when it comes to defining those hypotheses that I was talking about before. We are users ourselves of, of many of these products, and we tend to believe that what we think is sort of like true for the entire user base. But the reality is, and we sort of like prioritize our personal opinions and sometimes even prioritize the opinion of the people above us. But the reality is that if we keep making sure that we bring the users front and centers and we're building for them and not for others, we are actually going to follow the best growth path overall. And I want to say that both Google, but also later MongoDB have been great quote-unquote gems to, to learn how to respectfully push back on personal opinions and use data and user research and those insights instead. I love those principles and especially the keep the user at the focus as part of your product-led growth foundation. Because I think as growth practitioners, we have a tendency to say, oh, we're doing growth, we're doing product-led growth, like data drives all of our decisions. And in that mindset, it, it could be really easy to lose sight of what the customer actually wants, right? Because then you just like fill in the gaps with your own opinions, like you were saying. Very much. And in fact, in my mind, when I talk about experimentation, Matt, that should be informed data in a broader sense, as in like the data that you can read in a dashboard, super important, but also that anecdotal information or more qualitative data, as we call it, that you should gather from the users directly. I remember at Google, like, I think we really stepped up our experimentation game when we paired every quantitative experiment with a qualitative study that was ran at the same time. And so at the end of both components, the quant and the qual, we would sit down and sort of like review both of them. And I do believe that brought a lot of, uh, a ton of depth into how we were doing experimentation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's let's jump into an example where you join MongoDB, and I think your intent was to develop a product-led motion there. What was the charter? And correct me if I'm wrong. It wasn't really. It wasn't, okay. in fact. Like the, the beginning, uh, it was interesting because I joined to lead what was then the digital marketing practice and not even digital marketing, broadly speaking. I want to say very much a paid media ad core function that the company 
was running. The foundations, though, for product-led growth were already there because the company had launched had launched a cloud-based version of one of their most successful products a couple of years back, right? I realized as I was, again, you know me by now, going through the data and sort of like digging into the user experience, I realized that the company had this amazing product and that the product was already generating a lot of interest in their user base, right? Or in the potential user base. But for some reason, the conversion or the users weren't necessarily taking the leap into getting the paid for version of the product or the premium version of the product as quickly as they were uh, signing up for it. And then we also realized that there were other areas that could be clear winners. It was just a matter for me to sort of like bring, bring all the right people together and take a more 360 degree approach beyond paid media and other marketing channels and beyond marketing into product itself. So they company had all the foundations figured out because they already had product market fit, right? And the product was growing. But the growth team and me leading it was came into place when we realized that we want, we could grow that product faster than the organic pace. And that's exactly what happened during my, my tenure at MongoDB. I love that too, because I think in some cases, or at least recently, Product-led growth is the thing that everyone's talking about and product. And so a lot of founders and senior leaders say, like, we want to do product-led growth. We're just going to go for it and we're going to make it happen. Whereas in, in your case, what works sometimes even better is when you look at what you already have and find the opportunity to then build upon it rather than just trying to, like, start from nothing, right? You saw spots that said, this could really, really work for us. And then you made the investment in it. That's right. And and I want to say, especially for all the people out there who are listening to this episode, thinking, oh my God, we need massive teams or we need specialists. I happen to advise a, a lot of startups, really cool ones, and they have small teams, right? What I always like to tell them is that growth is a mindset first. It's not that you need a specific team or a specific platform or tooling or automation in place to do it or to start doing it. It's very much about looking at what you already have and finding those pockets, as you said, of potential, right? That you can then explore. So you saw that there was some potential. How did you think about goals and timelines? Because I think this is where it gets tricky. This is the in-between that no one really talks about. Like, I feel like it gets really messy here. How did you approach all that? It's interesting. Here, I have to say the, the Google school influenced me a lot. But before I get there and, and all the OKRs practice, I want to I wanna say that I believe the one of the keys to the, in retrospect, right? If I, if I look at my experience at MongoDB, one of the keys to the success of that team was basically aligning all the people working in growth. And so that is marketing managers, data analysts, product managers, product designers, et cetera, et cetera, behind the same goal. And for us, it was the revenue that was generated in a self-serve fashion to distinguish it from the sales-driven revenue. Sort of like having that high-level one goal for the entire team really made us uh, extremely productive because we ended up having very productive conversation on how are you going to set the goals, right? How can you break down that revenue into the leading factors that bring us to revenue? And then back to the to the user experience where, where you know, it's, it's at the end of the day, it's, it's a lot of math. I want to say that the OKR's objectives and, and key results philosophy 
played a really, really solid role in there. There are many, and as I like to say to my team, there are many ways of planning, but that one remains in my mind one of the best ones if you really need to align people who may have different uh, different views on, on how to do things. Having the same objective and the same key result, ultimately, again, revenue, really helped us a lot. And then there's the usual dance, as I call it, between the leadership team, the C-level team, who would always set very, very aspirational goals for our team in terms of revenue and then us determining what is truly realistic and a stretch goal and then adding some right but then from from knowing where we needed to get to from a revenue standpoint then all those conversations about budget headcount what is the how how long do we believe it, it would take us to get there uh, are just a direct consequence of all of that right very practically Matt when I'm thrown into those type of conversations and we are right now in the midst of Q4 planning and at gym pass and obviously 2021 planning. So we're doing the same. I always keep in mind a, the rule of three scenarios, which is prepare always three scenarios. What is the status quo? So if nothing changes, what is the incrementally better scenario? And then what is the aggressively better scenario? The one that you, uh, you probably already have a hint that it's going to be extremely hard to get to, but it's going to sort of like sparkle all those good ideas from, from the team on how we could potentially get there. And I think once you've gone through the exercise a couple of times, it's really amazing to see how, for example, at MongoDB, my team started to think that way. And other teams that we're working with are started to, to think the same way. And this creates sort of like the best conditions for thinking more broadly, but also very realistically. So do you think that there needs to be a very specific direct investment in this is a team that's doing product-led growth? Or can it work where it's more of just a mindset across? Like, how did you balance, like, the goal of your team and the budget and the resourcing for it against the rest of the business's goals? Yeah, and this is like the million-dollar question, I want to say, Matt, because there is no, I want to, the answer to this question, I think, is that there's no one-size-fits-all. I don't think there is ever going to be, and I'm happy to be challenged, but I don't think there's ever going to be a growth team structure that is valid for most of the companies out there. It has to be a very strong reflection of where the company is at, the products that the company is working on, and, and the goals that the company is, is striving for. I'll give an example. If you are a small company, right, or a relatively early on startup, and your big goal is to find product market fit, the goal of the growth team should be to accelerate the learnings on how to get to product market fit, because that is what the company is driving towards. If you are at a late stage startup, let's call it, where you've gotten a pretty strong user base already, perhaps your focus should be uh, more on how to convert that user base to happy customers and how to retain them, right? So I'm not saying that you should forget about the other parts of the growth mindset, but I do believe that the growth team structure should change depending on where the company wants to get to. Yep. And for the investment that you're making at MongoDB, once you went through all the budgeting and resourcing stuff, like what did it look like? Was it, we're going to spin up three new teams. You're going to start with external, like out of house versus in-house. how do you think about that? 
Uh, no, it wasn't big at all. It was very much the testing and learning approach just applied to how big we wanted to the team to get to. So in the beginning, I had a very small team, think about a couple of people and not necessarily with growth background. So I did hire out. I ended up with a, obviously a much bigger team that I did hire out for the most part because we really needed specialists for those areas. But before doing so, we did a, again, a test and learn approach. So we started by identifying which areas we wanted to prioritize first. I remember SEO was a big one at the time. And then building up an experimentation program was the second. Before even hiring people, we hired external third parties. So think about agencies that could validate, help us sort of like spin up some of those programs and then validate our thinking. Then, only then, uh, and only with the learnings in hand, we decided, okay, no, this is something that requires sort of like an an in-house specialist that should think more strategically about where do we want to be in a year from today and then build from there. What I especially like about what you just said there is you basically are taking the same exact process that you would expect a tactical growth team to be doing for any given product or channel decision, you just zoomed it out and applied that exact same formula to the structure of the team and the structure of the investment itself. Uh, yeah, you're right. And now you're making me think about it. It's, it is truly the idea here. And I think it goes back probably to having always worked with products and at companies that didn't necessarily had everything figured out, right? It's kind of the the idea of you're starting off launching your product, determining whether it's going to stick or not. You're, you're basically a learnings collector, if you will, and you don't have the truth or the right answers. I remember when I was at Stripe, one of the principles there was that question your truths, as in like if you're coming from Google, from another big company that has already become big, it doesn't mean that whatever worked for them is going to work for us, right? So maybe we get to the conclusion that it can work for us, but you would want to question that. And I do believe that goes back to gathering as many learnings as possible in every area to inform your best decision. That includes people and teams as well. Yep. So on the note of knowing your truths and whatnot, going into this product-led investment Were there things that you specifically knew would work? I want to say that I had some strong hypothesis. For example, even by looking from the outside, I thought that probably SEO could be an area that that MongoDB could benefit from more work or different type of work, right? Experimentation was another, but... I want to say that again, before doing anything, I definitely looked at the data to sort of like confirm that my strong hypothesis really, there was something in there, right? And then when I looked at the data, saw trends and areas, patterns, I want to say that were very similar to others that I, that I had seen when working at Google or Stripe, then I felt comfortable moving forward. And by the way, I never say it, but one of the first most foundational initiatives that we kicked off as a growth team at MongoDB was to create that end-to-end data view of the user journey because it didn't exist. It was siloed in many different places. And it was very hard for us to stitch the different data together. That one's an interesting call out because I feel like that is the thing that 
all growth teams need to do, but nobody wants them to do that first because they want to start seeing results. But when you're tasked with the spin up a growth team and do all this stuff, you just can't really do anything without proper data tracking. Absolutely. And and I always like, I always suggest the same thing to, especially at companies that are just starting, right? They're small enough. If they prioritize having an end-to-end view of uh, the user journey of their product, it's just going to be so much easier down the line. It is a whole different investment and difficulty when you have to undo things after 10 years, like the case at MongoDB, right? It was much harder for us to, to build something, to connect the dots there than if we had done that much sooner. So I would love to know if there are any examples of things, maybe you could walk us through a learning process where you had very high confidence that something was going to work for the product-led motion of MongoDB, and then it just didn't. Uh, I kind of have a reverse example, if you will. So let me tell you a little bit more about about this one because I think it's fascinating. So when I joined the team, they had just ran an incrementality test. So that is basically a test that you do primarily in paid media to try and isolate the impact of paid media campaigns from uh, organic demand, particularly the branded part. And I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there's a lot of literature out there saying, oh, if somebody is already searching for my product by its name, they most likely will get to my website and eventually the product and sign up for it, even without me actually showing an ad about that one, right? So they had run that incrementality test and based on the results, they had concluded that the paid media and the branded paid media campaigns the team was running were mostly cannibalizing the organic demand. So they were not necessarily adding incremental one. And if there was, it was minimal. So they decided to, and I supported that idea because again, I had just started and I looked at the data, it seemed right, right? We decided to stop all branded paid advertising, the majority of it, and only keep what it's called the category, category campaign. So non-branded, not naming the product. Well, the learning we had six months in, six months later, is that we started to see quite a decline, like a significant decline in the conversion of that demand, right? And after analyzing the the trend in depth, we kind of realized that we had only looked at branded paid advertising as a driver of first interest, right? And first sign up. But we had not looked at it at how those same ads were kind of reinforcing users' behavior to convert them to buying the product at a later stage. So when we did realize that, that we had turned off the campaigns for the wrong reason, we actually brought them back. And so now, again, as I told you before, we are kind of collecting learnings. Now we learned, we had another uh, more interesting learning, which was that users would validate their thought of purchasing a certain product through organic and paid advertising and paid spontaneous searches a little later in that journey and not immediately on day one. And I was actually reconnecting with the former colleagues recently, and they told me that they are now seeing even more strongly of that of that trend. People who had signed up, I want to say a year ago or many, many months ago, actually come back and convert right now. So there were a lot of implications that we had not considered in the beginning, and we went back on our steps. Such a great learning. Thank you for sharing. I feel like I feel like if you could save one other person from, from making that, uh, <laughs> that mistake, it's well worth it. 
So, all right, last question on this MongoDB example. As you were getting rolling and starting to make your investments, what was the internal support like for this motion? Was the entire company bought in immediately? I mean, it sounded like you had to do a, a little bit of education across the board to get people aligned and goals? Like, what, what was the feeling as you were getting going? And how did you think about and address that? I, I want to say it was a healthy mix of both. I, I do. I, our leadership team knew that there was some untapped opportunity that in the product-led growth motion, right? I think what we did, my team and the people people working on on growth and and I was just to show that we kind of had a roadmap. We knew where to start. We knew what to look at. We knew what initiatives could potentially drive more impact or or avoid bigger mistakes, and then we could execute well. And then by doing that in a fast-paced way, we started to get a lot of a lot of learnings along the way that sort of like not only validated our leadership team sort of like intuition that there was a lot of untapped opportunity there, but also sort of like created a lot of excitement from, I want to say, from our C-level team for all things growth. Makes a lot of sense. So you're back at it again. You're now with Gym Pass, as you mentioned, and you're approaching it with a product-led mindset. And this time it's with a bit of a, a bit of a twist. It's it's a little bit more of a B to C. Can you tell us how you're thinking about approaching this now that you're you're getting rolling? Yeah, I, I want to say it's very exciting. It's very fast-paced, Matt. The past two and a half months have been like a wind whirl. I want to say that what is fascinating to me about B2C are two things. The first is the scale. You're really talking and doing stuff that has a potential massive impact on a very large base of users. And the second is that end users make a decision for themselves directly, right? And their time to purchase is so much shorter. In in B2B, as you know, when it comes to product-led growth, and I want to say the long tail, it resembles B2C very much. But you also have a decision-making process that's a little more complex and requires a, a little longer to, to get to fruition. In B2C, it's like you launch an initiative today and tonight, you're already seeing amazing results. We were just testing out promotions and the use of credits to help people sign up for gym pass or get to use the product or come back to the product if they had left. And it's amazing to see how you just launch an initiative in the morning and at night, you're already seeing whether it's like trending in the right direction or not. Yeah. And I would imagine if you did the similar remove the branding campaigns, you would have known much quicker than six months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's also another one. We'll probably test that out as well. As I told you, maybe what worked for another company does not necessarily work for this product. So we might as well do it. We have strong data, though, that suggests otherwise. Cool. So any other insights or things that you want to touch on before we go ahead and wrap up here? I want to say, Matt, that as I mentioned earlier today, for all the people that are listening to the podcast out there, it's like, again, product-led growth is a mindset. You don't need a huge team to practice it. In fact, you can start off yourself by looking at the data about how your users are currently using your product, finding an area that can easily be changed and change it and see what that looks like and get some of the learning. So that's the one last point that I want to make sure people People get about product-led growth. Great. Well, Laura, thank you so much. This was a really fun conversation. Thank you for joining. 
Thanks for having me, Matt. Uh, it was the same. I, I loved it. Great. So if you're listening, you like this episode, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. We got plenty more with a bunch of other amazing guests. Laura, thank you again. And for those of you listening, if you have any feedback, questions, whatever it might be, my email is matt at drift.com. Feel free to reach out and I will catch you on the next episode. Thanks. Thanks.